Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far, in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Would you focus with me now on verse 14 for a few minutes? I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Or, like the King James Version has it more literally, I am debtor. I'm going to use that translation because I think the word debtor, which is where I want to hang about 10 minutes worth of my thinking, I think that word stirs up a lot of very, very important thinking for us. I am debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. So my question, first of all, is what's the debt? What does he have to pay to the barbarians? What does he have to pay to the Greeks, the foolish, the wise, so that the accounts are settled? And I think verse 15 gives the answer. You see the connection there. So, or thus, since I am a debtor to them, so, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So the debt seems to be the gospel. I owe the gospel to Greeks and barbarians and wise and foolish everywhere, including among the Romans, including the Roman Christians. Now, I think this word debtor makes us ponder how you get into such a debt? How do you get into such a debt to barbarians and cultured Greeks and everybody else? And how do you pay it off? Now, you might think, and this would not be far wrong, well, look, verse 1 says, Paul is called as an apostle. He's called to be an apostle. And it says, 
he set apart for the gospel. So clearly, that's his duty, his mandate, his call, and his set-apartness is gospel preaching. So you're obligated. Do it. Add to that verse 5, where it's clearly his mission. I received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. So... If that's what your apostleship is for, to bring about the obedience of faith by preaching the gospel among the Gentiles, do it. That's your obligation, your debt is to do that. Now, pay it. And you might think just in terms of authority. Jesus is Lord. The Lord calls him to be an apostle, assigns him to go preach the gospel. When you get an assignment from your Lord, you do it. All right, next point of the sermon. Now, that's really true. You should do what your Lord says. That's true. But as I read this text over and over, as I read the book of Romans, this text in particular, the flavor of this text isn't that. This just isn't that. You look at verse 5. He doesn't say... I got a command from the Lord. He said, we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul is not cowering or trembling or, or even gladly submissive, mainly to a word of command and authority here. He is stunned that he has been graced. I received grace, grace of salvation, grace of apostleship to do this wonderful work. That's a different flavor. That's a different spirit. And the question is, how does that create debtors? That's the question, which causes you to go a little deeper than just, he said, do it, do it. He's your Lord. You're his servant. You said so. Bond servant. Verse 1. Servants do what their Lord say. That's your duty. Do it. This is not the flavor of this text. There's grace pouring down on this apostle. He feels utterly unworthy. He feels so glad to have received this grace of salvation and apostleship. So how did he become a debtor? Well, verse 14, notice very carefully, says, I am a debtor, using the literal translation now, not just I'm obligated, but I'm a debtor to Greeks and barbarians. In other words, I'm a debtor to people. He's not talking about being a debtor to God here. I am a debtor to people. So how do you get into debt to people? How, how do you get into debt to people? I would guess that probably three-fourths of you are in debt to people in this room. How many have mortgages? Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. I, I had one. Paid it off a little while back. Um, you got into debt with the bank by borrowing money. That's how you got into debt. You, you get into debt from to people by borrowing from them. They loan you something and you now are in debt to pay them back. The, the barbarians didn't loan Paul anything. The Greeks didn't loan him anything. 
That's not how he got into debt with the unwise and the wise. It doesn't work that way. The situation here is not that the nations, the Gentiles, have loaned Paul anything to pay back. The situation here is, Allah, verse 5, is that Paul has received something freely from God, namely grace, grace of salvation, grace of apostleship. And when you receive grace from God, you don't become a debtor to God you become a debtor to everybody who, like you, needs grace. Grace does not put you in debt to God. You cannot and you dare not pay God back for grace or even try to, lest you nullify grace. If I this morning brought you a gift, just because I am excited that I came into some treasure this week and I just feel so good about sharing it. That's what happened when my mother died 28 years ago. She left me an inheritance of about, I forget, $17,000 or something like that. I had the best time giving a walloping lot of that money away, and it enabled me to get into a mortgage, too. First house we ever owned, we put a down payment from that money. But what joy. So if I came with some money this morning, and I gave you a gift, like a big box of something, and and I say, here's a gift, and you quick reach for your wallet and start scrumming and start pushing money into my hand, I say, it's a gift. You stick it in my hand and say, it's a gift. You don't get it. It's a gift. You don't owe me. Meaning of gift. G-I-F-T. No O-E-O-W-E. I respell O. <laughs> O-E-W. Grace is not a mortgage. There are no installment payments to heaven when you get grace. You don't go into debt with God through grace. If you try to conceive of it as debt, you nullify grace. Grace would no longer be grace if you could pay God back. Or even if you tried, and there are a lot of people ruining grace by trying. You know what the best thing about grace is? It pays debts. It pays debts. Oh, I'm in debt with God. Matthew 6, 12, Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Oh, I've got a debt with God. But it isn't created by God giving me grace, it's created by my stealing glory. You can get into debt two ways, not just one way. You can be loaned something and have to pay it back, or you can steal something and have to pay it back. God held out free glory 
to be enjoyed. We stole it off the wall of the museum, sold it for a bag of lust and have been feeding off of our preferences, not his glory ever since. That's just a paraphrase of Romans 1.23. They exchanged the glory of God for the glory of the creature. Or Romans 3.23. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. The essence of sin is the stealing of glory, bartering it off for a preferable human pleasure and delighting in that instead of God. Then you're in debt. And the only way you'll ever get out of debt is grace. Wonderful, glorious, free, sovereign, undeserved grace. So grace, when it comes to Paul in verse 5, Forgiving his sin and calling him into the apostleship does not make him a debtor to God. It somehow makes him a debtor to barbarians. How? Why? Well, I think it goes like this. If you're in trouble, along with lots of other people, you're in misery. You're in a, a mega disease or some terrible catastrophe has happened and you're all imperiled. And suddenly you find a remedy. You find a rescue, an escape. And you receive it with singing and with joy. It just came to you. You didn't qualify for it. And you don't look at the others in the calamity and feel indebted to share the escape and the remedy with them. What you say in effect is, I was qualified. They aren't sorry. And that nullifies grace. That's the end of grace in your life. If you know grace, if you know what it is to have been freely approached by God, called by God, raised from the dead by God, given the gift of faith by God, brought into fellowship with Jesus by God, freely apart from any qualification on your part, then when you walk out of here, you will not be able to lay your eyes on another human being, cultured or uncultured, and say, they don't qualify. Because you didn't qualify. And since you didn't qualify, they are no less or more deserving than you are, and therefore you owe them the gospel. You're a debtor to barbarians and to Greeks. I think that's why Paul stressed the phrases Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. What's he saying here? Why does he choose these, these categories? Greeks, the, the paradigm of culture and Knowledge, 
barbarians, everybody they else they viewed as couldn't speak the right language and they didn't think the right thoughts. And then there's the wise and the educated and there's the unwise and the uneducated. And he says, culture, intelligence and education do not qualify you for grace. And being unrefined and uneducated and illiterate does not disqualify you for grace. There are no qualifications for grace. Oh, Lord God, let us get this at Bethlehem. What a life-changing thing this is. There are no qualifications for electing Regenerating, calling, converting grace. Freely you have received and now you are debtors, not to God. You cannot pay back freedom, but to everybody else who stands in need of the same free grace. Paul is a debtor not because... They qualify. Paul is a debtor to Greeks and barbarians not because they qualify. They don't qualify. Nobody qualifies. There are no qualifications for grace. It's the meaning of grace. To the degree that at the front end of your Christian life, you conceive of meeting qualifications to get God on your side. You don't understand grace yet. Paul is not a debtor because they qualify. Paul is a debtor because he didn't qualify either. And grace came to him. And it keeps on coming to him. And if he keeps it from another, he is saying, and you are saying, and I am saying, I qualified, they didn't. And that's the end of grace in your life. You don't get grace if that's the way you think or act. Oh, that the Lord might grip us with the reality of free grace in this church. If we would be gripped by the gospel of free grace, what a difference it would make in our racism. Would it not? What a difference it would make if we were gripped by the awesome truth that we met no qualifications to be targeted by the converting grace of God. What a difference it would make in our ethnic slurs. What a difference it would make in manifold forms of self-righteousness. So that we come out of our apartment and see the man we don't like and just turn the other way and with all of our body language make a barbarian out of him. What a difference it makes to know grace, to be gripped by grace, to be held by grace. That's absolutely free. What a difference it would make in the demandingness of marriages. 
A culture of demandingness in a marriage. Fed not by grace, but by demands and justice and ought. What a difference. How many marriages would survive and thrive under this gift if it were known and welcomed? Now stop here a minute. That's first point. Hang it on the word debtor. What have I just done for the last 10 or 15 minutes? I want us to think about this. What have I just done? In this room. The reason I ask you that question is because it's a puzzling thing when you get to verse 15 now. I want you to hang the next point on the word gospel. The first word is debtor. The second word is gospel. When you read verse 15... So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. What's odd about that verse? What's odd about it is you don't preach the gospel to Christians. Do you? So my part, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. You whom I have defined as the called of Christ and the loved of God, the saints of the Most High, I'm coming to you to preach the gospel to you. You don't do that. You preach the gospel to unbelievers. Billy Graham preaches the gospel to unbelievers. You preach the gospel on the streets, you do something else in the church, right? Wrong. It's wrong. If verse 15 is right, that's wrong. So the reason I ask you, what have I been doing for the last 15 minutes? The answer is, I've been preaching the gospel. I've been unfolding for you the gospel of free grace. That's all I've been doing. And it terminated on racism, ethnic slurs, self-righteousness, marriages. In other words, the obedience of faith. Verse 5. The obedience of faith. Paul's goal in his apostolic ministry is not just to get first-time professions of faith. His goal is to get the obedience of faith. Something that shows in marriages. Something that shows in race relations. Something that shows on the streets next Sunday. Something that shows downtown and in your schools and in your homes and in the neighborhoods. Because it's obedience, it's outward and it's coming from faith. That's his goal. And so he says, I'm going to come and preach the gospel. The gospel changes lives. When you get the gospel... When you get it, when you cherish it, when you love it, when it grips you, when real, authentic, saving faith in the gospel of free and sovereign grace that goes on and on and on, lavishing itself on you, when you get that, and that's your treasure, everything changes in your life. 
And the only reason things don't change is that the gospel hasn't got to the core of your life yet. And that's why I will always be, I hope and I pray, a gospel preacher. A lot of people confuse the gospel with just a little outline. And oh, we need outlines. We've got one called Quest for Joy. There are other good ones. There are usually four components. God, sin, cross, faith. You need that in your head. God is holy. Sin kills and destroys. The cross bridges the gap. Faith gets you into Christ. That's the gospel. But that's not all of it. Boy, you can unpack that forever and ever. The glory of the gospel is inexhaustible. And we've got to have it. We've got to see it. We've got to know it. It's got to get down into our hearts. So we need to pray for each other right now. Those of you who know the gospel, love the gospel, cherish the gospel, live in an ocean of grace and find it changing your lives should right now be whispering prayers for others in this room for whom my language right now is absolutely unintelligible. They are so fuming about what others have not given them that they're supposed to give them. They are so angry that others haven't measured up to their expectations. They can't even hear me. You need to pray for those people right now. Because if that doesn't change, they'll never taste grace. You've been there. Turn with me to chapter 15 for just a moment. Chapter 15, verse 15. I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. Notice remind. That's what he does when he preaches the gospel to Christians. This whole book is gospel preaching. Preaches it to Christians and he calls it a reminder. That's what I do Sunday after Sunday. I just remind Christians. Because of the grace that was given to me. There it is. It's grace that sponsors this thing called gospel preaching. To be a a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. There they are again. That's his target. He loves these barbarians and these Greeks. He likes people who go to opera and people who like country western and He likes them all. He's a debtor to all of them. Ministering as a priest, the gospel of God. There it is. That's what he ministers. That's his instrument. He has no other, he has no other tool in his bag. So that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Spirit. You see what he wants? He doesn't just want ticks on his gun. He doesn't just want professions of faith. He wants a body at Bethlehem. I want a body at Bethlehem sanctified by the Holy Spirit, which is just another way of saying, chapter 1, verse 5, bringing about the obedience of faith, and according to these verses and chapter 1, the way the obedience of faith rises in a congregation is when the gospel of grace is understood Received to the core of your being and grace grips you. I did not qualify. He loved me freely. He chose me freely. 
He commanded and then he created what he commanded. That's my God and that's my grace. I have no other hope. If that's your hope, you won't walk out of here and cut your eyes at anybody for what they wear or their hair or their pierced bodies or their anything. And if you do, if you turn away and don't greet anybody, what do you know of grace? What do you know of how you've been welcomed? One last brief question. Is it enough for me to say this? Is it enough for me to preach this? Is it enough to have in one church a pastor who preaches the gospel of grace in order to bring about the fullness of the obedience of faith among all the people? And the answer is no. And that's what's behind verses 11 and 12 in chapter 1. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you so that you may be established. That is established in your faith. So here I come, I'm Paul, I've got grace on me, in me, apostleship, preaching, teaching, those are my gifts. I'm coming to you, I'm coming with the gospel of Jesus, and I expect that you're going to be established through my sharing of my spiritual gift. Now if you'd stopped right there, we might say, well, every church needs a Paul. Well, that wouldn't be necessarily false, but he doesn't stop there. Verse 12, very crucial here. That is... What I mean when I say I'm coming with a gift, what I mean when I say I want to share a gift, and what I mean when I say grace is all over me, is I want to be encouraged by you. I want it to turn around and come the other way. Together with you, while among you, each of us, watch the mutuality here, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, let me try to paraphrase that for you as we close. What I hear there for Bethlehem is this. There's a John Piper and there are a few other staff members and there are a few key Sunday school teachers. Yes, yes. And they're gospel people. They're grace people. But that's not the way God has designed this body to flourish. That's not the way God has designed the obedience of faith to rise to its fullest expression in this church is to have John Piper preach once a week and a few good other elders and teachers to do their thing in their bigger groups. Rather, it's very clear from this text, there's a mutuality in the church. God has ordained that spiritual gifts be exercised in the church. And what a spiritual gift is, in a nutshell, is this. I get it from Romans 12. 3 to 8, and I get it from 1 Peter 4.10. A spiritual gift is a stewarding of grace. That's a paraphrase of 1 Peter 4.10. We are to steward grace to each other. There are as many gifts for this body as there are people in this body. And for any person in this body, not to mediate grace to the body, is to nullify grace in your life. 
There are only Greeks and barbarians, wives and foolish in this church. And we are debtors all to each other. It's not just that John Piper has been saved by grace and been given the glorious grace of being a preacher. All of you have been saved by grace who are saved and been given the glorious ministry of the body. That's what verse 12 is all about here. The apostle wants to say, look, if in the church of Rome, the obedience of faith is to rise, let there be a system of small groups in Rome in which the body can minister to each other with grace. So here's the summary. First, everybody is a debtor to everybody else. Because everybody has received free grace. And to look at another person and say, you don't qualify for the grace that has been given to me in my particular personality. So I will not exercise a gift toward you. That person is saying to God, I qualified for the gift. They don't qualify for my gift. And that's the end of grace in your life. Don't do that. Second point was, what do you pay your debtor or your creditor? You pay the gospel. Grace. You extend the gospel of grace through all the manifold gifts. And that's the third point, gifts. It isn't just John Piper talking. When you leave this room right now, I'm calling you to do this. Your car is not your destination. Human beings are your destination. You got that? A man came to my house this week. And he said to me, I've been three times to your church. I stand in the middle of the commons every Sunday alone. I've never been greeted. This sermon was prepared before that happened. I'm not responding to that. It's already here in the text. If we have tasted grace, if we live on grace, if it is our life, past, present, and future, we are debtors to everybody in this room, debtors to everybody in the parking lot, debtors to everybody who walks along the street, Debtors to every color, debtors to the rich, debtors to the poor, debtors to the educated, debtors to the illiterate. And we look upon them with a sense of, I must. How can I not? It's so free. Father, as we go, would you please make us a grace-driven, grace-filled, graced Resting grace, happy people. The promises of your, of your grace are simply awesome and inexpressibly great. Minister to them. Minister them to your people now, I pray, as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.